Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The reason he goes to Miami and has to go into the drug business is because he has been told Cuba is over. There is no more bombing airplanes. There is no more going into Cuba to try to kill people. We are done fighting for Cuba, and he can't handle that. So then he is wasted. He's, where do I go now? Well, I've got all these friends that are drug dealers. I'm gonna go and see what I can do. I can help them. I've got connections, I've got codes, I got CIA things. I've got all the stuff they need to bring their product in. And when they do, if we get caught, I, they're not gonna arrest me, I know too much. I can turn around and help them all. Mythical exile, informant, bomber, drug dealer, assassin, quoter of military histories. Just imagine the LinkedIn profile of Ricardo Monkey Morales a key player in my book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. I talked to his son, who nearly 40 years after his father was killed, is racing to piece together the complicated story of dad's life. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Solomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's the Hall of Fame advisor. Learn more at SalomonLudwin.com. And by the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond, preparing students to be future leaders in a global business world by providing a dynamic learning community where real-world teaching practices, scholarship, and service are at the forefront of the curriculum. More at robbins.richmond.edu. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Joining me from Michigan, where he now lives, is Ricardo Morales Jr., the namesake. If you Google his father, Ricardo Monkey Morales, uh, has been called the most fascinating man in the history of Miami, the fascinating town, a, a lost spy, a spy for all seasons, informant. CIA operative, opportunistic drug dealer, uh, explosives expert. Uh, how are you, sir? Doing good. Nice to be on, Robin. Rick, I, when somebody asks you, okay, you're Monkey Morales' son, there's so many ways you can describe Monkey Morales. What, would you, what was what your elevator pitch to describe your father? Well, I guess uh, my pitch on describing my father would be misunderstood patriot, lost soul at the end. There's a fascinating anecdote that I know, uh, especially you and I got in touch after, you know, as my book was being published in 2017, I think we got in touch over Twitter, like, hey, why are you posting a photo of my father? I was like, wow, I found him now. Uh, It would have been useful to find you for the book, but we've struck up quite a conversation since and sharing notes about, you know, my 20-year fascination, 20-plus year fascination with your father's journey. I'm citing a famous feature story. It was uh, the cover story of Harper's Magazine uh, back in January 1982. Miami does business, drugs and terrorism in America's Casablanca. Uh, the main source for John Rothschild, who was the author, the late uh, Miami Beach-based author, your father helped him out with the story, and he shares this anecdote, which is just so irresistible. Let me read it. Uh, Morales, Ricardo Morales has been impressing Miami with high-voltage performances, and this is an anecdote that he shares. A man I know once made a surprise visit to Morales' apartment. He told Morales' girlfriend who answered the door that he wanted to have a friendly chat with Ricardo. He was invited to sit in the living room while Morales finished taking a shower. When Morales entered the room, he marched directly to the visitor's briefcase and opened it without asking permission. The visitor was too startled to object. Morales dredged up the tape recorder, which was already running. He removed the tape cassette and put it in his shirt pocket. He shook out the batteries and placed them at the opposite ends of the mantelpiece, like trophies. Then he returned the neutralized recorder to the briefcase. So far, Morales had not said a word. Then Morales pulled out his revolver and laid it on the coffee table. He had disarmed his visitor, and now he's offering up his own concealed weapon for the visitor's inspection. My friend lacked the wit to empty the gun and place the bullets on the mantelpiece next to the batteries. 
Morales got out a couple of glasses from a cabinet and poured some Shivas Regal. His mood had shifted from menacing to jovial. Now, he said, we can talk. That's the Morales style. Rick Jr., I'm sure you've been regaled with stories like this for, what, four or five decades? Yeah, I've been. I've heard, I've heard that story a couple of times. I've read it. Um, but it gives you a pretty good synopsis of who my father was in that he uh, would make sure you knew he was in charge, make sure you had a, some fear in you, what was going on around him, he knew, and then let you know that now that we're square, you're a good guy, I'm a good guy, let's do things. Because he just wanted you to know that he was... He could do things, but he didn't want you to be for the rest of your life. It's not like it's going to haunt you. What was your first memory of your father here in the United States? My first memory of my father in the United States is uh, there's there's a lot of little ones. Um, him being in the house and us being in bed watching TV. There's fishing trips down to Key Biscayne where we would go fishing and he would talk to us on the way down and... You know, try to try to explain himself to us a little bit. When we were younger, those conversations didn't make any sense. But uh, those are the early memories that I still have. And w- at what age do you faintly recall, I guess, your father disappearing for weeks and months on, on end? As we discuss, in the 1960s, his first decade in the United States, he was a notorious freelancer. He would take contract hit jobs and uh, bomb people's boats and scuba dive through the marina just to scare them. Um, you know, th- the, there were the bookie wars going on in Miami Beach and the Jewish and Italian mobs were blowing things up. And the Cubans who were here, who had been waiting for a rematch to take out Fidel Castro, didn't quite get it. So they went out and kind of offered their services freelance as your father did. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I think the memories are few and far between is that he was really never around. I didn't know it when I was a child. I figured everything was the same way everywhere that fathers went away and did things. But yeah, I remember the first time, I couldn't tell you, I must have been young, 10, I can't remember, we can probably figure out the age, was when he was coming out of a courtroom, there's video of that, from a trial, the TikToks trial, and I saw him on TV, and that's when I knew things were bigger than just a a normal father. Hmm. You know, I, I just can't believe it, if you go back and they're things that are being declassified piece by piece by piece by the CIA. I mean, uh, links to the JFK assassination, all the shady things that happened in Miami in the 1960s. Tell us about your journey to understand your father. I mean, there are so many crumbs that he left since his death at the end of 1982. Informant records, letters that he wrote people. It seemed like he knew he was not going to be long for this world, and it would take family and friends and journalists and everybody to kind of fully unwrap the story. It would take decades and a lot of cooperation from a government that has not always been cooperative. Yeah, very true. Um, And we've been working on getting those uh, CIA files declassified, but that is a struggle in itself. Uh, I remember my dad, I did some research on him once I started getting into the 15, 16-year-old range. And uh, and I started learning about stuff and then the airliner incident where the airplane blows up. And that's when I started figuring it out. But he would take us shooting out into the Everglades and he would take us uh, on little trips here and there. And he would tell us about stuff and he would let us in on some of the stuff, you know, saying it in a way where you could really put a finger on what he was saying, accusing. But there is just so much information. But even now, after his death, that they won't declassify most of the information. So, I am uh, taking a letter from 1968 that was written by the rebel army in exile. This is a group of uh, anti-Castro activists in Miami, of which there were many that your father was a part of. Your father was arrested for this conspiracy to shell a Polish tanker in the port of Miami. Of course, Correct. Poland was a communist country. But th- there was a more complicated thing that your father used. We'll, we'll discuss it to kind of make himself indispensable as an informant to the police when they nabbed him. But I want to read the letter from uh, the director of the Rebel Army in Exile, distinguished army countrymen. The Rebel Army in Exile wants to make known through this newspaper its energetic protest for the detention arrest of the tireless fighter for the cause of democracy, Ricardo Morales Navarrete, who has been accused of placing bombs in establishments catering to the delivery of clothing and medicine to Cuba. 
We want to make it clear we do not support terrorist acts that put innocent lives in danger. That is why the young Navarrete is innocent of the accusations, and we feel his arrest and his bond set at $25,000 is unjust. The bond cannot be obtained by his family since the economic situation of Morales and his family is like that of the majority of the Cuban exiles in this country, that they have to work in order to support their families. That is why we ask the authorities in this case, as each day goes by, is unfair to Ricardo Morales Navarrete. His children and his wife suffer more hardship because they depend on him for substance, which is sick. It should be subsistence. Also, for the general public that is unfamiliar with the young Morales, we show a picture of the young Morales when he was fighting communism in the Congo. What he has done for Cuban freedom, there is no need to speak. And those that have not turned their backs on the Cuban tragedy know him. Do you remember this incident when your father was arrested in 1968? How old were you? Yeah. What's, what year is it again? 1968. 68. I'm five years old. I do not. I remember he was not around. So, But I remember because my whole family was involved also because my uncle, Hector Cornelot, was also with my father, the ones that were placing bombs. There was factions that were placing bombs and there were competing factions that were placing bombs. And some of them were pro-Castro and some of them were anti-Castro. So my dad was trying to get involved in that for the FBI to try to figure out who's doing what for what reason. So who's doing it pro-Castro-wise, who's doing it anti-Castro-wise. So he was trying to provide all the information at those times to the officers. That's why he would plant bombs that didn't work on some targets because he knew they weren't pro-Castro, they were anti-Castro. So some of the devices would go sure, off. Sure. That was part of the games that he played. Now, did you ever ask your mother or your father point blank, like, what do you do? What does daddy do? Why is daddy gone? Why did you just understand that daddy was gone all the time? Yeah, no, that, that, uh, by the time we would hang out with him, we knew what daddy did. I never had to ask because not only it was on the news quite a bit back then, you would see stories on the news and you would read the newspapers and everybody told you, yeah, your dad's the one that's out blowing things up or your dad's this or your dad's that. And they didn't know. So we had to take it. And as children, you believe a lot of the things they talk about your dad. And then so I grew up believing he was uh, some kind of drug dealer for a lot of years. And then the political stuff started coming out. And that's when I got wise. How could you just grow up believing that your dad's a drug dealer? Like your mom wouldn't disabuse you of this, your older brother. Uh, what are other people saying? I mean, people in Havana, Little Havana, they talk. People in Coral Gables in South Miami. Your father is quite an infamous figure. Those people don't know the underlying reasons of why things happen. Like, for example, how does a CIA asset become the second in charge of Venezuela's DCEP department? They're basically their CIA. Never having lived in Venezuela, not having been born in Venezuela, why is he the second in command of Venezuela's secret police who posted him there? That's a CIA posting. So he was there working for the CIA. So <clears throat> we're going to unpack these things, Rick, but let's continue telling. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of so unpacking. There's so there. much to do, and I only really have a little <laughs> less than an hour with you, but we're talking to Rick so, Morales but, but, but Jr. Replying to what you were saying was the people, the people that are talking to you on the streets don't know these things. They don't know that he's working for the CIA in Venezuela and they're smuggling cocaine and guns and whatnot, and look searching for people and trying to overthrow countries and causing all these problems. So the people on the street of Miami only catch the, the 6 o'clock news where, hey, Ricardo Monker Morales is arrested for marijuana on the Miami River. But they don't know why he's there. He's undercover. They don't know who he's working for. They don't know none of that. So it's, it's the easy out for the local news. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Ricardo Morales Jr., son of the late Ricardo Monkey Morales. Uh, legendarily, there was a great story written by uh, Alfred Spellman in Medium. I encourage all of you guys to Google it. It goes by the very provocative title, Ricardo Monkey Morales, the most interesting man in Miami, who was gunned down back uh, in December of 1982. I would definitely Google it. So by the time your father's fingerprints were caught on the, uh, comes the you know this conspiracy, uh, the explosives conspiracy, he then planted himself with this group of Cuban exiles who planned to shell this tanker at the port of Miami. But he made, I remember reading that he made these fake sites for the kind of the bazooka for the recoilless rifle, and he infiltrated them and then handed them neatly to the feds. Uh, yeah, and it was a, a big trial, and there was a, a big informant records, and he testified yes. in the late 1960s, and he really, 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 truly made a 
a name for himself as an informant coming out of this. Correct. Correct. He when when all the bombing started in Miami, when they when those groups started forming the anti-Castros, some of them were pro-Castro, some of them were anti-Castro, but they were all hiding it. They were, you know, you couldn't tell. So he positioned himself in a way with the feds and the local police that he would provide them information by infiltrating the groups. And that where you say there was the ones where they, they were planning to shoot the Polish ship. The site was broken on the weapon. So he created a site by looking through the bore, doing a double site and boring it to the proper specifications. So he would come up with those things, but he was doing it to help figure out who was who. Now, there's a lot of talk. Was my dad pro-Castro, anti-Castro? Nobody could tell back then who was who. So that was a big debate. Is he doing this because he's pro-Castro? Because my dad did stay on in Cuba for a little while after Castro took over until they decided to try to kill him and then he had to take off. So there's always been that he was pro-Castro. He was working for Castro. Well, you had this, you had this, you had this whole miasma of pro and anti-Castro and, and uh, exiles right. insulting one another back and forth in the 1970s. Your father was very nearly killed in the early 70s. That somebody had placed the bomb in his yes in his vehicle. If you could tell us the story, there's this legend that the shrapnel is still stuck on a stretch of what is it, Flagler and 72nd, where your father nearly had his legs yeah. blown off. Tell us about that. Well, there was there was talk that he had planted that bomb and made it in a way that it, he did it himself to fake it. There was that, that's how that's how crazy the conversations were and the things were at the time. So yeah, the it almost killed him, but it's not known whether that was a fake bomb, a bomb that he planted in a way that wouldn't kill him. So it's just it's a, it's a crazy crazy story. But hold on, Rick. The idea was that after he had informed on Orlando Bosch and these other people who were looked at as freedom fighters who tried to bomb the Polish frigate, I mean, Poland being a, a an ally of, of communist Russia and Cuba back in 1968 was grounds for attack uh, with who Miami called the freedom fighters. But then they had placed a target on your dad for informing on them. So wasn't that the idea that he was a marked man by the early 70s in Miami, and he really had to watch his back. He was a marked man. He was a marked man as soon as he arrived in Miami because he killed his way out of Cuba. So there was people here. We, we, there's, a, there's a very big disconnect in this country with what happened in Cuba when Fidel took over and the people that left before Fidel took over. That country was being ruled by a dictator and those people were not nice people. Those are Batista's people that left and went to Miami. The first wave, those golden tickets that were given to the Batista people, which then turn out to be the people that run Miami now. It's ridiculous. But the moment he shot his way out of Cuba, had to go hide in the Brazilian embassy to get out of the country, spent 83 days in there. When he landed in Miami, there was already a price on his head from both sides. So... It was survival at that point. Uh, by the 1970s, as we document uh, your father's journey, and you know, I didn't tell the story that when he was waiting for the rematch to take out Fidel Castro and it didn't happen, and the Johnson administration, after Kennedy was assassinated, shifted its focus to the Vietnam War, uh, he kind of kept his heels warm by reluctantly accepting this job to go to the Congo and fight communists there. And this is something that in his communications with another journalist, uh, Taylor Branch, who wrote special pieces for Harper's and uh, Esquire and uh, the, the Washingtonian, your father became so traumatized by what he saw in the Belgian Congo. I mean, effectively, he and his compatriots mowing down child soldiers who believed that they were immune through prayers by, by running into um, automatic weapons fire. That there was a little girl who latched on to him. So by the time he returned uh, in the late 1960s from the Belgian Congo and this kind of this excursion that was so detached from his original anti-Castro intentions, he was he was truly traumatized. He was using cocaine. He was using marijuana, uppers and downers. Um, he was you know more paranoid than ever that things would happen and kind of disillusioned from the initial idealism that he brought to the United States in the early 60s. Yeah, because I think uh, if you look back conscious-wise, children and family never came into play. If you look at all the bombings and all the stuff that happened in Miami, 
it goes back, there was some unwritten code back then that you don't go after families. Things changed later on in Miami in the 80s when the Colombians and they came in and then there was just, you kill everybody. But back then they didn't, you know, it was something about that, that old time. And so I'm sure that watching those children and having been part of killing children really damaged them. I truly believe it did damage them because it was something that they were totally anti against. They would never Never, ever plant a bomb in a car where the child might be. Never, never go after somebody's family. If you look back, none of those explosions ever killed the child. Uh, you enter in the 1970s, and in addition to surviving that bombing that kind of blew off the front of his, was it a Cadillac or Buick in the early 70s on Cadillac. Black He always had a Cadillac. So he was always Cadillac, had a Cadillac. Seville, always. I mean, but I think it, I don't know if he had the Cadillac yet. Filled with ball, yeah. Filled, yeah. filled with ball bearings, and he infamously walked away from it. And I think he he shared... You know, he kind of flippantly laughed and he said, just another day at the office. But by then you're just seeing a lot of the, the exiles in his position who were trained, who were trained on on uh, on the coastline to kind of sublimate their skill set into smuggling marijuana. Look, if we're going to wait for the great rematch in Cuba and it's not going to happen, we might as well make some money. Right. And it was child's play for them to know the yeah. thousands well, of miles of coastline yeah. in Cuba, evasion, uh, smuggling. So. You enter into this place, which we're going to get into the 1970s. Your father played both sides of the law, both smuggling marijuana, Correct. endearing himself to other pot dealers, and informing on them. Correct. Going off the the Venezuela smuggling, well, that's later on. Yeah, we'll get into but, that. But yeah, he uh, he once he uh, was, I believe this is a, this is a core belief of mine that once the airplane is bombed, okay. And he is ordered out of Venezuela because he disappears. They think he's dead. He's missing. People are looking for him. And then he turns up in Miami. That's because the CIA had recalled him. And at that point, they burned him. They put a burn notice on him. He was done. Because if you look now in time, after that airliner bombing. Hold on, hold on, Rick. No. You're, getting, you're getting into things that we haven't even gotten to yet. He's still in there. <laughs> but it's just to me, they're all, they're all connected because... The reason he goes to Miami and has to go into the drug business is because he has been told Cuba is over. There is no more bombing airplanes. There is no more going into Cuba to try to kill people. We are done fighting for Cuba, and he can't handle that. So then he is wasted. He's, where do I go now? Well, I've got all these friends that are drug dealers. I'm going to go and see what I can do. I can help them. I've got connections. I've got codes. i got CIA things. I've got all the stuff they need to bring their product in. And when they do, if we get caught, I, they're not going to arrest me. I know too much. I can turn around and help them all. As he was infamously one caught, once caught by a, 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 you know, the state prosecutor's people in a sting operation with marijuana, they found him with all the frequencies of the highway patrol, of the Miami Police Department, yes. the Coast Guard, everything. He was an indispensable prospective asset to pot smugglers because from an evasion and intelligence perspective, and this guy knew yes. explosives if you if you had to get into the violence, but he was a great guy to have as a kind of an intelligence chief. But we know that in his private letters and um, in his disillusionment and the stuff that he would share with uh, uh, the authorities, especially that he hated, he hated sullying his hands on drug dealing. He thought it was anti climactic, yes. not glorious. He comes from an educated background. His father It's not who he was. Was a judge, but yeah. he just had to It's not who he was. He just had to bide his time doing this in the early 70s. He figured the only way that I'm going to keep myself relevant and asset to the to to the government authorities is by helping them with this problem that they have right now and I can aggrandize myself and keep myself in the loop. And then that made so many more enemies from the drug world that were after him. From the, then you have people from the spy world trying to kill him. So it just made more enemies. But that was all that was left to him. You have a CIA asset freedom fighter who is looking for a country to go help and is not allowed to do anything. There, he wasn't going to go paint houses. He wasn't going to go get a nine to five job. That, it's just, it wasn't him. So what can I do? I'm going to make some money and, and try to keep myself in the action, in the, in the go. 
His famous quote was, I don't play to win or lose. I play to stay in the game, is what he told That's many people. Right. And reading a, That's right. You know, uh, it was he was quite a reader of histories. He had a photographic memory. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Ricardo Morales Jr., son of the late Ricardo Monkey Morales, who's been billed as the most fascinating and enigmatic man in Miami. Please stay with us. Full disclosure, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Ricardo Morales Jr. He is the son of the late Ricardo Monkey Morales. If you Google Ricardo Monkey Morales, he was uh, an, a, a notorious informer, uh, strategic drug dealer, explosive ex- expert, CIA agent. Uh, he was a, a, a man of many mysteries in Miami who was killed in 1982. We're going to get into that. But uh, I want to start uh, this next stretch of conversation with you, Rick, by you sharing this story with me, I think of your dad in the late 70s and early 80s at on one of those rare occasions where he came back into your life. He took you shopping at the Omni Mall in downtown Miami. Yeah. And you oh guys God, were coming yeah. back from shopping in the parking in the parking garage. Tell me about it. Yeah, the brand new Omni Mall. It was gorgeous back then. Uh, we went shopping, had a great day shopping, headed back to the car. And I was out in front of him, of course, running towards the car. And as I got close to the car, he screams at me, don't touch the car. We have to check for a bomb. Are you crazy? And that was my instant awakening to, wow, this is crazy. And we actually did get under the car together and look for a bomb. (laughs) Like I would know one if I saw one. But yeah, that was uh, that's how it was. How do you even have that conversation once you do get into that car like you're a teenager. What do you say, dad? Like, what the heck? What do you do, dad? Yeah. You know what? I think I was in so much shock that uh, it just didn't even didn't even register the whole drive home. After that, the conversation went back to normal. And I don't I didn't even tell my mother. I didn't tell anybody. Well, I didn't tell everybody anything anyway. Back then, I kept a lot secret. But um it was it was just the craziest moment. Did you just suspect that he was a drug dealer looking to CYA? When I was young, yes. Yes. When I was young, yes. After the airplane bombing, where I'm old enough to do research, then I start learning about the CIA, the Congo, the missions in Europe, uh, stuff like that. I'm going to take you back to the early to mid-1970s, where he decides things are getting really hot in Miami. He's been an informant. He has uh, killed people. He has tried. You know, there was one incident in broad daylight in the late '60s, I think, in Little Havana daylight, where he sprayed 17 rounds from a, 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 a what's called a grease gun, an automatic weapon, into a fellow exile's face. The guy survived, and he again called that another day at the office. But his legend right now in the Anton Anton his legend yeah. his the guy's the guy's name is Anton. They used to call him Atomico uh-huh. Atomic. Because you couldn't be killed after that, they said. So that's the thing is that every 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 domino table in Little Havana, there'd be legends about your dad wafting. And to take it back yeah. to when he nearly had his legs blown off, I believe in 1971 or 1972, he uh, he got into this habit of always checking for dust streaks on the car when he left the car and he came back. Whether he was shopping, whether he was driving around, he wanted to make sure right. that that nobody had tampered with the car in his absence. And another thing is. With the, uh, you know, there was an enemy of his um, with the whole situation with Eladio Ruiz, a person who tried to kill your father in the early 1970s. There was a famous scene where it was a drive-by shooting. Your father was in his car and he took a slug to the side, you know, a bullet to the side of the head. And he was just injured and he knelt down kind of into the floorboard of the car, peeled out the bullet, put it on his dashboard effectively and then turned on the light and rolled out of the car. And as I wrote in the book, he pursued the would-be assassin, knocked on his door, and yeah, he actually, shot him he in the face. He actually took out the dome light. So He actually removed the dome light this is crazy. from inside so, the car. Yeah, he so get he to, has more so than nine, nine lives at this yeah. point. And this is just illustrating just how hot it had gotten for your dad in Miami. But yeah, that story is, is a good story because the guy who was coming to kill him was an informant who was trying to get him... In, inform on my dad and then my dad found out and that's how that came up so he was waiting for him and they were uh he saw them from the apartment where he lived downstairs getting ready with their guns so he let one of them came up he entered the house 
And on the way out, the guy made the mistake of exiting first. And then my dad took him out. One of the crazy stories is your cousin, who you reunited with uh, since the book was published, Hotel Scarface, she shared with me the story of your father oh, in yeah. the 1960s of, this is crazy. You know, your father, there was a, they had an apartment in Little Havana, your cousin did, and and his sister, you know, your aunt. And he said that if I were to ever run through this place, I'm going to leave you a portable bomb under the bed, and I'm going to give you instructions to set off the bomb and jump out of the window where there was this overgrown mango tree. Because somebody is pursuing me and this is what you need to do. Yeah. Explaining that to a little girl in elementary school and talking to her decades later, she says, oh, yeah, that was totally my uncle. And now I look back at it and think, wasn't that crazy? But that was the life we we occupied as relatives of this most wanted man in Miami in the 1960s. Yeah, it was a normal. That was just like you said earlier, just another day running from somebody or chasing somebody. He would show up out of the blue. I hadn't seen him for months. I need that bag or I need that gun or they're coming after me. And uh, he was having so many running battles with so many other people in Miami that were trying to, he would think, sometimes there was paranoia. Some of them are real, some of them weren't. But it was every day. Rick, why do you think he accepted this job to go to Venezuela in the mid-1970s and become the number two official in the intelligence apparatus, DCIP, in Venezuela. What the heck does that have to do with a Cuban exile in Miami? Well, I guess it's because that put him in a spot where he could do something big. The big dream, they called it, they, that Bosch and the Cuban exiles want of putting a big hit on Cuba. So I think he knew that by making the Americans happy, the CIA happy, and letting them use him to do whatever they wanted to do, he could then allow what he wanted to do to happen. Whether he would be involved directly, indirectly, it doesn't really matter to me. He said it himself that no matter what, if you're involved 5%, 10%, you're involved. So I think he did it to give him access to continue his mission, which was to attack Cuba any way that he could. And that's why they went big with the airplane, and that's what cost them the whole mission, because they never did anything again. If you look after that, there has been nothing done. Minimal little, tiny little things. The war against Cuba is over. So unpack this for me. When you talk about the airplane, it's the bombing of the Cubana Airlines incident, which was linked to U.S.-based exiles. The Was it the fencing, the national fencing team of Cuba the fencing team notoriously was, yep. Yep. was killed in this? Yeah. What year did this happen, this bombing? 79, 78, I believe. I'm bad on dates, Robin. <laughs> but I do think it was like 79, 78. So, you know, your your father would tell people later in life when he was on the witness stand that he had he shared historic responsibility for bombing this airline. But you go back and you look at it. It was the Cubana de Aviación Flight 455. It was from Barbados to Jamaica. It was brought down in October of 1976. I think while your father was this, yeah, was this, was this agent yes, yes. in Venezuela, you don't believe, you don't believe that your father would have had anything to do with that bombing, that he, especially after the Congo, did not believe in, in attacking innocents. My, my, my understanding, this is what I believe happened. There was a plan to bomb the airliner. How to get that done required somebody from the CIA, multiple agents to help with Luis Posada, my dad. I believe that he afforded them access to all the places that they needed to go through Venezuela to get to Barbados, to do all the things they need to. There was a big meeting in the Dominican Republic where there were a lot of anti-Castro people to discuss what to do next. And this is one of the ideas that came out of that. And then, so the intent was that he would allow them to do this and his allowing him to do this makes him a co-conspirator in his mind. So it doesn't matter if you planted the bomb, you built the bomb, you provided the C4, you're, it's all one thing. So you are co-responsible for it. That's why he, when asked in an interview, he said, yes, I was involved. And he even said, that's it. If you're doing part, any part of it, the result is all of you are involved. So, 
Rick, I want to cite a, 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 a really great magazine story. Again, the two prominent journalists who endeared themselves to your father, Taylor Branch and John Rothschild, they got to write a feature story that appeared in Esquire in March of 1977. It's called The Incident. How two mild-mannered reporters on the trail of a Washington bomber landed in Caracas and ran afoul of the Venezuelan Secret Service, warring Cuban terrorists, the Miami police, the State Department, the CIA, the FBI, and the most dangerous man alive. All this and their mothers didn't know a damn thing about it. It really opens up into your father's persona back then. He refused to admit in Venezuela that he was that same Ricardo Monkey Morales. Uh, from 1960s and early 70s Miami. He called himself Romulo. He cared for them. He helped them get out. And yet he had to put on a persona. I'm going to fast forward to you. By the end of 1977, in early 1978, your dad finds himself back in Miami. He was afraid. Uh, you know, He was helping, in addition to the other things he was doing, he was helping the Mossad in Israel chase uh, Nazi war criminals. He was looking uh, for Ivan... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, what is it? The Carlos jackal? the jackal. Was, the jackal. Carlos, Carlos the jackal. the jackal. Sorry, I was going to say I have it yep. terrible. Uh, but See, he does end up thing. again. That's another. That's another part. No, and uh, Golda Meir gave your father a medal for helping him hunt, <laughs> for helping him hunt Nazis in Paraguay. But we don't possibly have Rick. We don't possibly have enough time. I want to get into the mutiny. There's years. a connection there with Venezuela too, because I don't know if you read Jerry Sanford's book, but in Jerry Sanford's book. There's mention of the Carlos the Jackal hunting, yes. But if you also read in that book, you'll see that they were hunting Nazis in Bolivia because the cocaine cartels back then were Bolivia and Venezuela. All those countries around there were going through that's Venezuela. When we get closer to, that's, when we that, get, that's when we get closer to 1980. But Rick, give me, right, give me a pause right. for one second. We're talking to Rick Morales, son of the late Ricardo Monkey Morales. Your dad ends up back in Miami, broke and again, disillusioned by late end of 1977, and he reappears at the Mutiny Club, the Hotel well, Mutiny in Silver Bay. I'll tell you where he reappears Bay, at was, first. I'll tell uh, you where he reappears at first. I got one for yes. you. I'll give you one. He had been missing forever. They thought he was dead, as you read in Taylor Branch's book, The Labyrinth. And he shows up at my football practice. That was the first time anybody saw him. I was running laps. One lap, he was there. Boom. Hi. Wow. I talked to him for about 20 minutes. Said, I'm back in the country for good. And that was, and then he said he'd be back the next day. And I never saw him. Never came back. Did you? Th- that was him. Did you think your, did you think your father was dead before he showed up at football practice? People thought he was dead. Yeah. I, we, nobody had heard from him in months. So I don't know where he was hiding or who was hiding him, but nobody had heard anything about him. So the Pucho and, and his sister Yolanda were the two closest family members to him in this world, besides his you know, mom until she passed away. And uh, they had no clue where he was. So they were starting to, to think he might have been killed after the uh, airplane incident to just tie up all the loose ends. And then he shows up in Miami at uh, my football practice. <laughs> So let's talk. Let's talk about the mutiny. Let's talk about the yeah. mutiny. He is. And then he went to the mutiny that night. That's why table. he didn't come back the next day. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. So let's talk about. Let's talk about the mutiny here because talking to the police, he was still an informant. He had made this deal in the late 1960s when they found his fingerprints on explosives. He had gone to Venezuela, however reluctantly, and he came back and. Talking to police people who took uh, meticulous notes, and and you see some of the notes that have been released over the decades, he hated the fact that he had to implant himself with drug dealers, with people who had not yeah. done glorious things, who were just in it for the money. So he partners Correct. with Carlene Casada, the notorious cocaine kingpin, uh, and Rudy Redbeard at Table 14 of the Mutiny. Uh, there's a bull market for cocaine. If you were moving marijuana in the 1970s, cocaine is much more profitable it's less smelly. You can get all the, the power and the money. The Colombians had not yet reasserted themselves. Tell us about the cocaine and mutiny phase of your father from 1978, let's say, until his, his death in yeah. 1982. Right. Yeah. So he finds himself persona non grata in the you know, spy world, broke, and uh, needs to survive and stay uh, relevant, like you said live to fight another day. So he knows all these people that are doing all these things. A couple of them are childhood friends from back in Cuba. And he uh, he goes to the mutiny, and one of the guys that he knows, he offers his services, you know, dual it benefits both of them. So I can provide this for you, 
and uh, you just uh, provide some money for me, and that's a great job to have until he can figure out a way to get back in the big time. Not drug big time, political big time. So in about March of 1978, there was the bust of Rudy Redbeard's mansion in, uh, you know, this was the state prosecutor, Janet Reno, was following him from the mutiny and other places, and Carlene Casada. All these guys get busted, but they were very confident in that they had bribed judges, they'd bribed police officers, they had in your father a brilliant head of intelligence who, after all, had all the frequencies of the cops, knew, knew the information that he could provide them. Uh, these guys get busted in March of 1978, but they're not very worried about doing serious time. But then your father, very interestingly, when this bust happens uh, and the wire has not been shut off, he goes to deliver and consummate a massive purchase of marijuana and he gets himself busted. And for the first time, he spends serious time in prison. But we do right. know, going back and looking at the record, he used this time in prison to terrify the people outside of prison that he was informing uh, you know, on them. This, he gave, he gave incredible was, notes. This was his statement when he was in jail, when we were talking about bailing him out. I remember this vividly. It was, we're going to, Pucho's talking, they're going go to we gotta get, we're going to get to bail, and we're going to get it out. And he says... Are you crazy? I'm safer in here. I'll stay here for a little while, catch my breath, and stay here and make 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 new plans. He didn't want to get bailed out. He was like, please leave me in here for a while so I could rest, get some sleep. Oh, It's interesting. It's that the headlines, and he was still talking to reporters in the Miami News and Miami Herald says, uh, prison does not suit Morales. He's not happy, which was strategic <laughs> on his part. He was playing yes. psyops on the conspirators out there, but then he helped. Jerry Sanford and the U.S. Uh, uh, attorney bust. It was at that time the biggest bust, the biggest cocaine bust in Miami history. And he right. made himself indispensable from there the inside. Go. So these, these, I'm back. these table mates of his at the mutiny. But here's the interesting thing, Rick. I wonder when you read my book and your father opened it up, you know, in this, in this scene, let's say in 1980 yeah. in the lobby of the mutiny, and he's <laughs> very nearly about to get his brains blown out by the bouncer. Yeah. Um, he was a whole other thing that he was going to do was inform on his table upstairs. And the fact that I met a hostess who, when your father was terrified and he got out of jail, he asked to room with her. He asked to sleep on her couch. He was so terrified of being killed that she saw a whole other side of him from the macho guy who would snarl at people in the lobby and who wore this fake grenade on his belt. He would cry on her shoulders every night and, and would say, why am I yeah. not dead? I mean, you can laugh at it now, but talk about shadowing persona. Life, no. Yeah. I think at that time, that's why I say lost soul. I said it earlier. I think by that time, he was so disillusioned with where his life had ended up. And then it just it was spiraling in a direction that could only end up in one way. Because he that's not who he was. He wanted to be... The spy. He was the spy. He was a James Bond in real life. He wanted to do the espionage work. But once he got burned after the airliner incident, there was nothing for him. That All that was left was that world, and he tried to use it in his, to his advantage. And in the long run, it becomes part of the reason that he dies. Rick, in 1981, he notoriously informed on his table mates at the mutiny including a lot of celebrated exiles, the Via Verde brothers, Carlene Casada, people who were known alternatively as kind of little Havana heroes and uh, uh, pillars of the community. This was a notorious case, and your father was forever associated with TikToks because right. what he helped do was he helped the state, uh, he helped the, the cops install a bug in a wall clock uh, of the cocaine dealer's stash house, Carlene Casada, and it provided hours and hours of incredible intelligence. And the cops pounced and arrested these exiles. And your father finally took the stand in spring of 1982. Talk about, I mean, if he was enemy of the exile people, he seriously had a target on him by 1982. He makes the cover of Harper's Magazine, January of 1982. He's on the cover of Newsday Magazine that summer. He's giving interviews left and right to Little Havana people. He's admitting all sorts of sordid things on the stand that I was involved with the bombing or this person did this or this person slept yeah, with this gave person. gave an interview Spilling. to the Venezuelan news network. What did you think would happen by then that your father was so intensely in the press once, by then? Once I saw the interview, 
in 81 that he gives to Chow, the reporter from Venezuela, regarding the uh, involvement in the airliner. People, it's in Spanish, so a lot of people that Americans, they think they know Spanish, but he's constantly saying in that interview, La CIA, La CIA. And people, that's La CIA means La CIA. It's just a short way of saying it. And he's in an interview telling live that the CIA is involved in blowing up a Cuban airliner at his direction and his involvement. When I saw that, I knew his time. I was like, they're going to kill him now. There was no way he was getting away from that. And then when he refused to go into, they put him in witness protection. They sent him to Brooklyn and they wanted him to get a job. That's not him. He wasn't going to do that. And then he comes, says, I'm coming back. He comes back to Miami. It was just a matter of time at that point because he was just talking and he was talking about writing a book. So I think at the end, over self-destructive. So by 1982, and he admittedly was was on uppers and downers, a lot of cocaine. He wasn't sleeping much. Uh, He was worried for his life and he was crashing, always looking behind his shoulders and paranoid that if it wasn't the Castro people that would come after him would be the drug dealers would be the retinue of the people he left behind in Venezuela. Uh, was he on a suicide mission in your mind? That's, uh, I, re- I remember going to your, uh, your book event at Miami-Dade. And uh, after your Q&A, I decided to ask a question. Nobody sure. in the room knew who I was. And so I asked Lieutenant Diaz that question. If you recall what the question was, do you think that at the end, he just went and said, this, I've had enough. I'm going or you're going or we're all going. And I do honestly believe that at the end, or after he left witness protection and he knew he had no cover and everybody that wanted to kill him knew he had no cover, it was because he wanted to have a shootout somewhere. He just wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. I believe it with my whole heart that man could not grow old. He was not going to grow old and, and live a life working somewhere. And he got tired of it, tired of it. And he said, you know what? This guy wants me dead. Let's go. And he wasn't expecting that they were looking to kill him. And that's what happens when you go out without protection and more than one people in a room are trying to kill you. It's hard to keep track of them all. Uh, I'm going to read from the Miami Herald in December 21, 1982. Ricardo Monkey Morales Navarrete, the 43-year-old Cuban who made a career out of dealing and double dealing in the treacherous world of exile terrorism, was shot and critically wounded late Monday night in a Key Biscayne bar. He was shot in the head in a dimly lit bar adjacent to Rogers on the Green Restaurant at around midnight. He was taken unconscious to Mercy Hospital at about 12.30 a.m. At one time or another, and in some cases perhaps at the same times, he had been an intelligence agent for the Castro government, an anti-communist operative who went on armed raids in his homeland, a mercenary in the Belgian Congo, a demolition expert for Miami gamblers, an informant for the FBI, CIA, and U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, and the chief of counter-espionage for the Venezuelan secret police. Two days later. He was dead. I, when I met you and when we spoke at the Miami Book Fair uh, in, in 2017, this was 35 years after your father was killed, you recalled you know, seeing your father and not recognizing him when he was intubated and the scenes in that hospital and then all the other innuendo that has followed years after that in the Miami Herald. How could he possibly have died in a bar fight? Well, I, at the hospital, he... Uh... He didn't look like himself, but he had been shot in the head from the back, so the head was swollen. My mother, we were all there, all the children, my brother, Raul, my sister, Sylvia, and Bucho Morales, and my mom were all in the room when we made the decision to pull the plug. My mom's the one that said it was him. So that's what we went by. But it was him. There was, it was just, it happens. You know, sometimes it happens. In closing, Rick, what has it been like? I mean, your father keeps showing up in Miami Herald articles. People, exiles who get arrested decades later seem to mention the ghost of Monkey Morales. Uh, people still have so many theories. He's kind of a Rorschach for everything, a metaphor that everything that went wrong with our misadventure in Cuba. Yeah. And imagine that's just what we know, Robin. The things we don't know are the things that really are the ones that are eating at me. Because... I know that he went down, he was killed, drugs, whatever. That wasn't him, that wasn't his life. And and there is so much we don't know about him that I we need to know. That's why we're try we're on this mission to find out 
and bring out the true story and everything that we can find out about his life. And I just want to say this, make sure it's out there. This would never be happening if it wasn't for Robin's book, an amazing book about an amazing place at an amazing time that included my father's life in there some and has turned this into an amazing story and and hopefully we can share it with the world so they they can see how it was really back then i gotta say rick and in closing there are times when i first was on to this story and your father had left so many crumbs uh, after his death between the tiktok's testimony informant records photos in the florida room at the historical society your father had kind of left this trail for future generations to pick up. I was, as I told many people, haunted by your dad. And your dad has haunted other journalists, other prosecutors, this this charm, this charisma, this enigma that has graced the cover of Harper's, Newsday Magazine, Esquire, people who have followed him for decades. As I said, the Miami News and Miami Herald had file cabinets dedicated to this mythical exile. And I used to walk back from my magazine job in Rockefeller Center to my apartment on the Upper West Side, and think about the notes that I read from from Ricardo Morales. This was, you know, years ago, and I would say, "What is he trying to tell me? How do I want to unpack this book? Who do I need to talk to?" So I give thanks actually to your father, who's now, you know, in 1982. You're that's 40 years ago uh, when you look at 2022. Who who left this story to me? Who inspired me? And, and I'm only regretting that I didn't meet you before the book, but. Who knows? The yes, world is small, here. as they say same in here. Spanish. El, el mundo es un pañuelo. I post up a picture of your father, and a mutual yeah. Hurricanes fan gets it to you, and you're like, why are you posting yeah. pictures of my father? And then I learn all these things through you and your cousins since, and you're no, reuniting imagine, with family. And Yeah. Imagine I had not told my children the story of their grandfather. Nobody knew until that book came out, and it just that has just opened up another world, and it's a fantastic world. It's a great world. Rick Morales, I cannot thank you enough for your candor, your vulnerability. I can't wait to learn uh, what more you learn on this kind of scavenger hunt. Uh, Rick Morales Jr., uh, son of the late Ricardo Monkey Morales, who was called the most interesting man in Miami, was uh, died at age 42, 43 in early 1982. Definitely Google him. And Rick, I can't wait to see what you have coming up. Thank you for joining us. Oh, we've got a lot coming up. We're working on a pretty big project here, so hopefully uh, everybody will get to watch it soon. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan. This show podcasts on NPR One, on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com, and on Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Make sure you catch our recent show with the University of Richmond's Robin School uh, featuring poets and quants. We are also on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.